everybody. I'm the Woodmother, and this is the Woodmother's Workshop, my low-budget, low-effort, low-quality practice podcast that I'm using to build my writing and audio production skills and document my research for a story I'm writing called Gate City Blues. This week, I've got some fun updates for you. We're finally finishing up my analysis of the book Prohibition in Atlanta by Ron Smith and Mary O'Boyle, and as a sort of synthesis of everything I've learned so far about the intersections between alcohol and the music industry, I've been working with my TikTok mutual, Reverend Marigold, to write an original Prohibition-era-style folk song, which will premiere in full for the first time later this episode. Also, if you've been keeping up with the last few episodes, you'll remember that Lucius Jones has been using his Society Slants column to advertise a huge party he was planning at Sunset Casino, and this week we'll finally hear how it went. So we have all that to look forward to, but first, let's talk shop. Every week, I try to give y'all an update on my behind-the-scenes setup. Last week was my first episode using my Blue Yeti Nano microphone, and I'm so pleased with how it's improved my audio quality. I'm still recording and editing on my iPad as opposed to my laptop because I'm still a little intimidated by the thought of learning how to use Audacity, but I think this is working for me. So I'm going to keep things the way they are for now, Uh, maybe test out some new editing apps because this one I'm using, Hokusai 2, um, is a little bit frustrating at times, but... For all intents and purposes, I think I found a setup that works. I still need to get better at the scheduling and routine aspect of podcast production, but I think I've come a long way since I first started. I've also come a long way in my understanding of prohibition in Atlanta. Before reading this book, I thought it would give me some useful historical context for the setting of my story, but I hadn't anticipated just how closely the history of alcohol was intertwined with blues and vaudeville, and nowhere was that more true than Decatur Street. Ron Smith writes, In early 1900s Atlanta, theaters operated like early nightclubs. Other than motion pictures, they offered vaudeville acts, dancing girls, comedians, animal acts, and noted musicians and singers. While the more civilized entertainment happened on Peachtree Street and Auburn Avenue, Decatur Street maintained its sporting status. Decatur Street's Bailey's 81 and 91 theaters paved the way for well-known Auburn Street social spots, like the Top Hat Club, later the Royal Peacock in 1938, and Club Poinciana in 1944. This area hosted many famous African-American entertainers such as Bessie Smith, Ma Rainey, Tom Dorsey, Cab Calloway, and Blind Willie McTell. Decatur Street became Atlanta's version of Memphis's Beale Street. Blues music of several varieties, ragtime and jazz, all influenced Atlanta's nightlife through the years. One form common to Decatur Street was Barrel House Blues, This music style was named for the small gathering places where a barrel of illegal beer was placed in the room and shared by patrons while listening to music. There's actually a book on my Amazon wishlist called Barrel House Blues, Location Recording and the Early Tradition of the Blues by Paul Oliver. It tells the story of the agents from recording companies that traveled through southern cities like Atlanta and New Orleans, setting up primitive recording equipment in makeshift studios. They brought in street singers, medicine show performers, pianists from the juke joints and barrel houses, and captured their voices on behalf of companies like OK Records and Columbia Records. During the Prohibition era, those barrel houses, juke joints, and other blind tigers became underground test beds for blues and jazz musicians, like Blind Willie McTell, who was a street performer in Atlanta throughout the 20s. In Living Atlanta... Musician Marion Brown recounts his memories of Blind Tigers in Cabbage Town, which was a black neighborhood just on the other side of Decatur Street from Sweet Auburn. Yeah, there was half a dozen right around in that neighborhood, because when all them mill people got out, man, they headed for a bootlegger. 
They wanted to get them a drink when they got out of that dusty cotton mill. Performer and composer Perry Bradford tells us in The Devil's Music that Cortland Street's Vice was operated by a white gang, while Decatur Street was run by a black gang. Bradford talks of several Decatur Street locations where a knowledgeable person could get a belly full of corn whiskey. Bluesman Tom Dorsey recalls in The Voice of the Blues that the town went dry and those countrymen would come in town and bring the bootleg liquor, and people had these parties together, especially up and down Decatur Street, which was kind of a sporting district anyway. Many blues musicians were actually involved in hauling moonshine from the North Georgia mountains into the city, a process called tripping. In Atlanta's early Prohibition days, white lightning was smuggled into the city on the backs of farm carts, but once automobiles came on the scene, tripping transitioned from cart to motorized car. Prohibition in Atlanta tells us tripping had really taken hold with national prohibition. In the early 1920s, a hauler could make enough money on one moonshine run to buy a new Model A Ford. The runs were so profitable that the haulers figured they could abandon one out of every three cars to the law and still be ahead. The dirt roads from Dawsonville to Atlanta were the birthing grounds of NASCAR, but the backstory is in the strength of the trade route. For a period of time, Dawsonville was the national moonshine capital. Brave drivers would load up and wait until nightfall to drive to Atlanta, then clean up their cars and do early morning drop-offs. Trippers took their cars quite seriously because the ability to conceal liquor and move it faster than the law was paramount. During the height of Prohibition, a 1929 Chevrolet touring car could be modified into a liquor trip car with a false back seat hiding a storage area that could conceal 125 to 135 gallons. Liquor runners would gather along U.S. Highway 41 from Atlanta to Marietta to show off their modified cars. That is absolutely wild to me. So trippers would soup up their cars to outrun the police and show off their modded cars to their friends, and then they thought, we could turn this into a whole sport. And that's how NASCAR was invented. I never in a million years would have guessed that that was NASCAR's origin, but now that I know it, I can't think of anything more fitting. And currently, Dawsonville, Georgia is home to the Georgia Racing Hall of Fame. Back in Atlanta, even though drinking at the time was an important form of socialization for the urban working class, it wasn't the only entertainment they sought out. Moving pictures, vaudeville shows, music, and sporting events were increasingly popular. If you remember from the episodes on vaudeville history, many Victorians held the notion that fun equals sin, and by the 20s, those attitudes were sort of sloughing off, spurred on by a boom in advertising. Young city dwellers developed an insatiable thirst for amusement. The routine of the work week demanded an escape. Entertainment became the factor that connected a nation divided by race, class, and ethnicity. Americans were collectively looking to get out of the house. Personally, I wonder just how much of that cabin fever and insatiable thirst for amusement can be attributed to the mass trauma of both World War I, which ended in 1919, and the global Spanish flu pandemic that lasted from 1918 to 1920. I've read previously that a lot of the carefree debauchery that we associate with the Roaring Twenties and the flapper girl imagery was born out of the we're-all-going-to-die-anyway sort of nihilism that resulted from those major global tragedies. I'm interested to see whether our own post-COVID future follows a similar trajectory. I'm already seeing people talk about all the parties they're going to have and all the places they're going to travel to once things are 
back to normal, it wouldn't surprise me at all if this next decade becomes known for wild parties. That said, the mental image we currently have of the Roaring Twenties, where every American danced the Charleston in a speakeasy and drank until the break of dawn, is largely exaggerated. Most of the speakeasy culture occurred in the largest northeastern cities, like New York and Chicago, and the total number of patrons was only a small percentage of the population. Atlanta residents and college students may have attended occasional parties, with dancing or without, where a hip flask may have been passed around, but it was a very different environment than what you might find in New York. Still, this growing nightlife culture ushered in a lot of new progressive attitudes, and not just regarding drinking and dancing. Throughout the country, white patrons ventured into clubs that featured black musicians, and music helped bridge the racial gap in public entertainment, even in the Jim Crow South. Prohibition in Atlanta then goes on to say that clubs that hosted live music did more for racial integration than any other institution. Atlanta whites were beginning to take an interest in black music, most notably jazz. White couples in Atlanta were also beginning to frequent nightclubs that were primarily known as bastions of black entertainment, although on a strictly segregated basis. According to African American Entertainment in Atlanta, Bailey's 81 Theater on Decatur Street had special nights for white audiences. Described in 1920s local newspapers by the chaste white evangelicals as demoralizing, wicked, and the devil's music, jazz was blamed for hypnotizing youth and destroying marriages. These evangelicals linked the wickedness of jazz directly to anti-prohibitionists. Once again, at the core of this fervor was the aversion to race integration, especially in dance halls or private parties where illegal booze consumption was known to occur. All of these societal changes were leading up to a conflict between the old guard dry party and a new generation of pro-alcohol voters. After decades of social upheaval and changes in public attitudes around what was moral and acceptable, as well as the Great Depression which made the potential revenue from alcohol taxes seem really alluring to the government, Congress repealed the 18th Amendment in 1933 with the passage of the 21st Amendment. Nationwide prohibition was over. But if you recall, Georgia had passed the Bone Dry Law in 1917, and that would still be in effect until 1935, when Georgia lawmakers finally bent to public pressure from voters and repealed it. So while nationwide prohibition lasted from around 1920 to 1933, Georgia's prohibition lasted from 1907 to 1935. Also, something interesting I want to point out, in both the rise of prohibition and its fall, women played a major role. If you remember from a few episodes ago, the Women's Christian Temperance Union, the WCTU, was a major driving force behind Georgia's local temperance laws as well as the national temperance movement. At the time, women couldn't vote, but they lobbied aggressively and were very politically strategic. The WCTU then played a major role in women's suffrage and the passing of the 19th Amendment, which granted women the right to vote, in 1919. Side note, keep in mind that this mostly applied to white women. Women of color were still affected by the Jim Crow voter suppression laws that affected their male counterparts, and they wouldn't be guaranteed the unimpeded right to vote until the passage of the Voting Rights Act in 1965. At any rate, the WCTU and those of similar mind had assumed that all American women, once given the right to vote, would vote dry. What they did not count on was the dramatic change in society from 1919 to 1933. 
the next generation of women, now with the power to vote, had completely different ideas about their place in society than their forebears had, and many of them wanted prohibition repealed. Drys were so narrowly focused that they were shocked to learn women would want to drink in public. In their eyes, it reduced women to the level of men. Women once placed on a high moral platform were jumping down of their own volition and joining working-class America like never before. And what did they do about their new place in society? They made their voices heard, and they voted. Many of them voted directly to overturn the prohibition that their mothers and grandmothers had worked so hard for. I was so captivated by the idea of liberated daughters whose power to affect change was a direct result of their mother's lobbying, who then used their vote to overturn their mother's life work. I felt like it perfectly captured some of the recurring themes of my Gay City Blues story. That sense of complicated legacy, of knowing that to some degree you owe your parents for the person you've become and yet the strength they modeled for you became the very thing that gave you the power to defy them. I was so enamored that I decided to write a song about it, collaborating with my friend and TikTok mutual, Reverend Marigold. We premiered the first verse of the song on TikTok last week, but you'll be able to hear the full song for the first time right here, followed by an interview with Marigold himself. But first, I gotta pass my hat around and hope you toss some coins my way. So without further ado, you can find me on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, Etsy, and Patreon as The Wood Mother, all one word. Woodmother stickers are for sale now in my Etsy shop, and you should buy one because they're very cool. They were designed by my friend Lucas Ryan, who you can find on Instagram at LucasRyanimated. If you'd like to subscribe to me on Patreon, you'll get access to my Woodmother's Cottage Discord server, which, in addition to being a great community full of cool people, is where I write all of my research notes in a log and I regularly chat about my story progress. Also, I want to take this opportunity to thank some more of my lovely followers who have sent me gifts this week. I just received a copy of Mules and Men by Zora Neale Hurston, courtesy of Elizabeth Houston, as well as A Chosen Exile, A History of Racial Passing in American Life by Alison Hobbs, from someone who signed their name H. Kalatial. I really wish I knew how that was meant to be pronounced. Colleen Thiessen sent me a copy of To Build Our Lives Together, Community Formation in Black Atlanta, 1875-1906 to by Allison Dorsey. And finally, Jessica Gallo sent me The Original Blues by Lynn Abbott and Doug Seroff, which is the follow-up to the book Ragged But Right that I got a few weeks ago. Thank you guys so much for your support of my research. If you'd like to get me one of the books from my wishlist, I've linked it in the description down below. Now, for the moment we've all been waiting for. Around my wrist when I was born.
White Bow, performed by my friend Reverend Marigold, who I have here with me today to talk a little bit about the song. Hi, nice to see you, or talk to you, I guess. <laughs> so I found uh, Marigold through TikTok. Uh, we're mutuals, and when I came up with this idea for a song to capture that sort of complicated legacy of the WCTU, I thought that Marigold would be a perfect fit. It was actually your song that you wrote about your leg hair <laughs> that made me think, yeah, that made me think, wow, this person, this person can take a really bizarre topic and give it a lot of emotional weight. <laughs> legitimately my one of my only talents as an actual songwriter because i got i have three chords that i can do but my my talent is like i could write you a heartbreaking song about a lamp and i have um that's <laughs> just about all i got going for me so i uh i approached marigold with this 
idea. Now, I'm, I don't really consider myself a songwriter. I can write poetry, but I, the whole, like, coming up with music and melodies just feels like witchcraft to me. So I had a sort of mental image for the vibe of the song. Um, I knew that I wanted to, I wanted it to be sort of reminiscent of existing folk songs. I wanted it to feel like it could have easily, like, really existed in the 1920s. And I wanted it to feel rooted in the music history. So, um, the direction I originally was thinking was more of like a, you know, giving it more of a religious undertone by connecting it to, say, uh, the... Carter family or some like old camp revival songs um like can the circle be unbroken was one of the ones we we brought up um just to sort of symbolize the conflict between there's like a bit of religious trauma there of like having the old-fashioned parents and then now you're moving away from that but um it was you who came up with the idea for the melody uh do you want to tell us about that yeah totally so i had actually been thinking about this because before covid i spent a month every year in scotland doing uh, music ethnography um and helping to teach a class on scottish folk tales and ghost stories and so there's a lot of like things that like i think authenticity is a loaded word but there's a way to make a song feel authentic and it was actually a scottish musician um who introduced me to the song that we used um I found a recording of him, and back in the 60s, a lot of temperance songs came back up on the folk scene, and one of them was Whiskey Cellar. That Whiskey Cellar was recorded in, like, the 19-somethings by a woman who had been born in the 1890s, and it basically was just, like, one of the songs that had been passed around, and I think the reason that I chose that tune and why I suggested it was because a lot of other songs, like, the melodies are really familiar, but the reason that this one is not as familiar is because it just doesn't fit within modern music. It's, like, it's a much different tempo. It's, like, it feels a little bit off to a modern ear, and I, I thought it would fit really well to, like, give something a little bit more of an authentic tune. Yeah, and it's thematically perfect because the chorus of Whiskey Cellar is, like, um... Uh, it's, uh, oh, get out of the way, you whiskey seller. You ruined the menus of a clever fellow. Um, yeah. yeah. So it's it's an anti-whiskey song. Um, exactly. It's telling about how bad alcohol is and, you know, how it ruins people's lives. And so um, one of the main reasons for wanting to write original songs for my story, Gate City Blues, is because my character Cora is going to be serving in a somewhat of a like song catcher role she's interviewing people and collecting songs and so i i wanted this song to be connected to a character and it makes sense for me in my head at least that this character would have grown up hearing whiskey seller as part of the WCT repertoire, it was something that she would have associated with the temperance movement. And so, she, she, you know, she's changed the lyrics and made it her own. Yeah, totally. Uh, do, you me, do you want me to speak on that a little bit? Yes. Or... <laughs> totally, yeah. And I think that's actually, I think it's a really clever move in general because, like, a lot of protest songs and a lot of temperance songs were just taking old melodies and rewriting the words like yeah 
like uh, every Pete Seeger song ever is taking old folk songs and putting union words to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, communists uh, would always take like it, there was a tradition of singing at like these sort of like progressive yeah. meetings, uh, and so a girl who uh, a woman who was raised in that tradition when she moves away would probably take at least that part of like taking something and reclaiming yeah. it for her own or their own, and I think that's one of my favorite parts about it uh, about it is because like folk musicians don't write new melodies whenever they can avoid it and we yeah. write folk lyrics as little as we can that so was just, like, keep... that was really comforting yeah. for me like not knowing how to write music just remembering oh yeah it was actually super common to just recycle melodies that was that was the norm yeah and it's like that's how we got the song battle of him of the republic because mm-hmm. it was a woman who woke up in the middle of the night in a fugue state after having listened to this like tune and went like I'm gonna write this big patriotic song um, out of like out of this thing and now everyone knows it as that and it's been and instead of like, John Brown's body exactly and, and of course, well it, now now it's solidarity forever <laughs> exactly and and so they took the exact same thing they took they built on they took the union song for the American Union the North mm-hmm. and then and they made it about the, labor unions about labor unions exactly and people would even reclaim like minstrel songs like dixie from what i've read um there was a thing of reclamation and so that is in the tradition as well how did you how did you come up with you know the opening line i was i was born in cold spokane what sort of prompted that because i'm that's interesting to me yeah um i was raised around i I took a lot of history from my dad's side of the family um they my great-grandmother, Violet Zimmerman, um, was born in Spokane in 1880, mm. um, and she lived there her whole life and wrote poetry about Spokane and wrote poetry about Christianity and flowers and stuff like that and was in a lot of women's groups at the time the story Gate City Blues is set. And so I grew up around a lot of alcoholism, and there is a lot of alcoholism that runs in that side of the family. And so... The image that immediately came to my mind when I was thinking of the 1920s and trying to come up with the cadence of this song was the poetry I had read from my great-grandmother's poetry book um, that she had published near the end of her life. And there was this particular rhythm to it, and especially because, like, the women's subculture was very much, like, distinct from a lot of the poetry that men were writing. And so what inspired me was basically just, like, Partially the rhyme Spokane and drinking man. Like yeah. you can't like you, you <laughs> can't really get you can't really one. separate that. It's a very important one, but it's also just like I think that just the imagery and connection and the grounding in that actual like stuff that I it, it felt like the place I was the most comfortable with and I think that the song is better as a result. That's super interesting. I like how the first verse sets up this idea that I've talked about in a previous episode of the podcast that the reason women were largely so pro-temperance is because their lives were directly affected by men who were alcoholics. They were in danger. They and their children were in danger. And so it's easy to see, you know, from hindsight, like, oh, it's just a bunch of busybodies who wanted to legislate morality, but to really try to understand, like, their lives were on the line you know, victims of domestic violence, people who just wanted to make a better world for their children. And ultimately, 
ultimately they went about it in a way that I don't agree with, but I understand the idea that like you want to protect your children and you want to protect your daughters from drunken men and protect your sons from becoming them because you know if you've married one then that's you know a constant like significant factor in your life um and so like it's sort of bittersweet because the the song is from a perspective of someone who has sort of outgrown their parents beliefs but like you still understand that you know, your mother did the things she did because she was trying to protect you. Even if, you know, the strength that she had in standing up to the government, in lobbying ceaselessly, even without having a right to vote, like, having a strong mother made you into the kind of person that now has the strength to defy her. Um, And that, I just felt, was a really powerful image. Yeah, and I I think that is one of the things that I was really glad to come out of this songwriting process because I think that's the other reason that I chose Spokane actually is because a lot of a lot of the people who live in that sort of eastern Washington area don't ha- they are very close to their families like spiritually but there's no emotional connection there's a very strong sense of tradition but that sort of emotional aspect is not talked about basically at all. And so there is that like sort of mournfulness in the song that I I hope that I captured and that it is person raised in this tradition, in this like, in this like place where they were just trying to draw strength and love from their mother. And then just in the end, just had to leave because they couldn't like reconcile with the mother because the mother was so set and so stern. But like, it's exactly what you were talking about. And I think that, like, I think that's the other reason that Whiskey Cellar is so good because the original song is just telling people, like, you will loot, you will go to hell if you drink. You will yeah. curse and you will it'll, die. It'll rob your strength and throw you in the mud at length. <laughs> exactly. You will, like, you will lose your brain. Like, and mm-hmm. so it's just like, and so just sort of that, just like conviction to put on a child when they're born yeah like to put that as the grounding is just yeah. like we haven't we we actually haven't mentioned yet where the name <laughs> of the song co- comes from but <laughs> in, <laughs> in the wctu their symbol was a white bow and they would have little like little lapel pins with the white bow but one of their traditions was they would tie a white bow to the wrist of the baby to signify i'm going to commit that my child will be temperate all their lives and then they had like little you know kind of like girl scout boy scout thing but um for girls it was called the white shield and for boys it was the the white cross and it was basically like a little children's club where they had them sign sign little contracts saying oh I'll never drink and I'll never I think one of it was like I'll never engage in any activity that my parents would disapprove of and it reminded me a lot of like you know the little abstinence pledges that I remember from like my southern baptist upbringing and how in my research in the history of prohibition in Atlanta um so much of the shifting attitudes towards public entertainment and alcohol were closely linked with the areas of the city that were integrated 
because the more different types of people you have interacting, the easier it is for you to realize maybe the way my parents did things isn't the only way. Yeah, exactly. And I think that, like, drive to commit to, like, this very particular sense of manifest destiny, and it's like, I'm not trying to, like, always bring this back to Spokane, but, like, I think that Eastern Washington and Oregon are very good examples of this because talk about cultural homogeneity after the settlers and, col- and colonists, like, arrive in, in force, like, they're two of the most racist states in the union, um, and no one talks about it. And so then a daughter who then tries to move away from that family is inherently doing something that their mother would disapprove of because the family, because to their narrative, and this came from Violet Zimmerman as well, was we trekked across this country and we landed here and we have claimed this and we will defend it with our lives. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like, I can't claim that a white, any white person who wrote that song in the 1920s would, like, reject yeah. that sort of thing at all. But, like, yeah, one of the, sort of like... The motto of the WCTU was, like, for God and for country. It was very, very <laughs> nationalist. I feel like it's super relevant, especially in terms of how women were set on this pedestal as, like, the morally superior sex. And, like, they had this duty and obligation to be, like, the mothers of the whole country. You know, just like you enforce the morality within your own household, telling your children what they can and can't do, that's it's women's job to do that to the rest of society. And I think, like, in the 1920s, you know, this new generation of women were like, no, <laughs> I don't. That's yeah. The world has changed now, and I've changed. Yeah, and I think that is also, like, just to tie it back, like, we talked about when we were writing the song that alcoholism was just not permissible in women yeah However, what was permissible was taking patent medicine patent medicines usually were like 60 percent alcohol plus like, like laudanum <laughs> yeah like fucking just like cocaine and just like and it is this like I, it's, I i don't i don't have any justification or proof for this but i think that it's just like really interesting the way that it is like wine like wine mom culture has like, yes. and like you're the one who brought this up as well yeah that, my like, friend uh beating the binary on tiktok uh <laughs> the ciscore anthropologist talks a lot about like how wine mom culture is sort of you know made alcoholism a little bit more palatable as long as you're like drinking alone and in your own house <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's, like, where you can hide it away from everyone else. It's, like, where you can hide your hysteria, where you can hide your, like, like, whatever. And I think that's, like, also what makes it almost so, like, there's a real tragedy about this because, like, there is, like, this very obvious arc of, like, this post-Civil War traumatized society the temperance movement was largely started by women who were with the nurses in the Civil War and then came back and saw, like, these trauma, like, hundreds of thousands of traumatized people drinking themselves to death. Yeah. Like, drinking methanol in the streets, like, drinking ether. Like, that was a huge thing where ether Oof. drinkers, um, and it was just causing them pain and cause, and like a, and they saw it as a sickness in society. Yeah. But instead of coming at it from healing, from like they came at it from the only lens they knew, which was from Christian firebrand morality, yep. which then sort of, and then like they got so set on this to like reform society and like as a defense mechanism to defend themselves, to like keep themselves and their daughters safe from like this thing that was like going through the land. 
and then all of a sudden, like, they got what they wanted, and then their daughters rejected it. Yeah. Often, often on mass, and so, and then they, many of them live to see the works that they had worked for often undone, and so mm-hmm. it's just, like, this, like, very tragic story of this, like, group of people who were trying their hardest but pushed the wrong place and in the end saw their works crumble around them that's getting melodramatic (laughs) yeah it's just seeing your life's work undone by your daughter and you're like but i did all of this for you and like the story my gate city blues story is all about you know complicated relationship with your parents and complex legacies um but something I also wanted to point out was that this divide between like women's drinking happens at home and men's drinking happens in public um was very closely tied to entertainment culture and saloons and so like that has come up time and time again in my study of the history of vaudeville and uh, performance because for so long saloons were the spot where alcohol and entertainment was happening in the same place the last thing I wanted to bring up um, is that I think this sort of came about as a happy accident uh, because this was not intentional Um, you wrote a few of the verses I wrote a few of the verses and like I think the final one was like 50-50 split and I noticed after you had already recorded the song, that because of the setup, like, we're talking to mothers in general and about their daughters in general, we end up using they-them pronouns. And it sort of becomes unclear whether, you know, we're talking about multiple daughters at once or if the... Uh, if the narrator from Spokane just uses they them pronouns and I think that's really interesting that we're both non-binary and we sort of like accidentally <laughs> backed our way into that you write what you know when you all, when all you have is non-binary pronouns everything looks like an opportunity to uh, looks like a nail I don't know mm-hmm. <laughs> um, well this has been really fun um, what a great first interview uh and everybody else you should go follow reverend marigold on tiktok uh they make banjo content but also are a woodworker just you you don't cease to impress me (laughs) and uh for anyone who's listening at home go my first single god of bones is now streaming on spotify it is a folk punk song about biominerals i I love that it's one of my favorite things i've ever written so you should go check it out it's so good everybody yes go listen to it uh go follow them on tiktok and also you were just featured in uh a publication yeah a lot of things have happened this week um got my first interview got my first article yeah i was featured in an article by country queer about uh queer tiktok musicians they gave me a very lovely write-up um so go direct them some traffic they're lovely they have fantastic recommendations uh and they are run by super sweet people so you should go check them out all right thank you so much marigold it was so nice to have you for anyone looking to follow them on tiktok and spotify Their username is spelled R-E-V-E-R-N-T underscore M-A-R-I-G-O-L-D. 
And now, at long last, we've come to the Society Slants, and this one is a real doozy. We finally get to hear all about Lucius's grand old party at the Sunset Casino. But first, I have a little update on the Langston Hughes front. Last week, we learned that he'd be coming to town to perform some of his poems and give a lecture at Morehouse College. In the Sunday, December 13th, 1931 issue of the Atlanta Daily World, we're informed that the date for the recital of Langston Hughes' noted poet at Morehouse College has been changed from Wednesday evening to Thursday evening to avoid a conflict with the Lawrence Tibbet concert. The recital will be at 8 o'clock Thursday evening in Sale Hall Chapel on the campus. Hopefully, in the next few issues, we'll find out how that went. But I know what y'all really want to know. You want to know about Lucius Jones's party, and I am happy to oblige. <clears throat> Gotta put on my Lucius voice. You ain't heard nothing yet. When the cat's away, the mice will play. That's the way the old saying goes. Friday night at sunset with most of the members of the professional and business world out at Spelman College to hear the colorful Abby Mitchell, the younger members of Atlanta society went rampant with gaiety. Ten syncopated instruments, keened to the importance of the affair, were worked overtime by J. Neal Montgomery and his hired help. Scores of charming bells and matrons flaunted gowns of arresting beauty. The males were attired in fronts creased to cut and with gilt-edged sharpness. Even the cravats in their many-colored patterns stood out in the pantomime of the night. Those hundreds of hilarious young people gave Atlanta's athletes a send-off that they'll long remember. A centrally located electric sign reading, Welcome Athletes, came in for an overwhelming degree of approval. Mirth held sway and all were gay. Okay, is it just me? But does anybody else want that on a t-shirt? <laughs> Miss Lois I. Rutledge electrified hundreds of admiring eyes with an attractive and delicately created evening gown of most select material. Mrs. Helen Martin, Alma Pleasant, Ethel Moore, and Lily Smith, equally appealing in their respective gowns, and all members of La Clique de Dicep were just so many alluring smiles during the night. Does that mean, like the 16 club i've noticed a lot of atlanta social clubs have the number 16 like the silent 16 i wonder what's the significance of that miss julia bell fountain seemed to have had the time of her life miss henrietta smith and laura lane forgot all about social service work miss ruth simpkins banished all thoughts of good old math i remember miss ruth simpkins she's a prof uh, professor i think it's spellman he wrote about her in another column and was like Oh, I guess things aren't working out in Chicago. She's got two boyfriends. Um, yeah, I was mad messy. <laughs> Miss Flossie Armstrong dismissed such inconvenient pedagogical problems from her peppery system. Christine Barrett McFarland sang with a fervor foreign to many. Willie Kate Taylor revived her lithe and graceful motions across the waxy floor. Petite Miss Jessie Foster thrilled all with her studied poise. Now that feels a little bit like a backhanded compliment, calling someone's poise studied. It reminds me of that one line from Pride and Prejudice, where Lizzie says to Mr. Collins, like, oh, no one would assume your manner to be rehearsed. <laughs> 
Miss Lily McAfee and Juanita Perkins appeared not to have lost any of their former charm. Mrs. Laura Campfield, Trifenius Anderson, Helen Powell, Geraldine Allen, May W. Porter, Verna May James, and Algernon McCoy held more than an option on a coveted corps of collegians. Juanita Chapman was in the wild, and how gay was she? Whatever that means. The Delta Epsilon Betas, one of the city's newest social clubs, was on hand, and such popular misses as Ginny Weaver, Serethia Brown, Catherine Cox, Christiane Lewis, Maggie Brown, and others could do naught but accelerate the mirth. Miss Louise Mitchell got the usual kick out of selling her red-hot line to a long string of young men who looked the part of good bait. What does that mean, Lucius? Bernice Handsome held her laurels for smooth and graceful dancing. Mirth held sway and all were gay. More feminines, and of course there were hundreds more, having carloads of fun and looking superlatively swanky in their beautiful gowns and devouring smiles, were Mrs. Elizabeth Adams, one of the younger set's leading and most consistent hostesses, Flora Marable, Inez Brown, Eula Brown, Minnie Calloway, she of the radiant eyes and winsome smile, Anne Wilkinson, Helen Williams, who knows what this business of being the sinosure of all eyes is about? Alice Pearson, May Henson, Rosa Timbers, Julie Minifield, Manola Griggs, Alice Thomas, Mrs. A.J. Lockhart, Mrs. Walker, Mrs. Upshaw, Mrs. F.W. Lacey, Olivia Sims, Daisy Miles, Ruby Stanfield, Mrs. O.V. Stokes, Edith Martin, and many others lost in the gay din of the night. Mirth held sway, and all were gay. I love that line, and I love how he keeps repeating it. Almost slept a ringer. Miss Rosa Thomas, one of Atlanta's most attractive and buoyant belles, was out, and despite her seeming option on one Professor C.L. Monroe, gave a few of the anxiously awaiting throng a break. Professor Hooper... E.B. Surreals, A.J. Lockhart, and W.J. Nix didn't look at all as if they had passed the 21 mark. Boyishly gay, they had their fun. <laughs> oh, really? Messieurs C.W. Washington, John B. Hill, Joel Smith, and Cleo Phillips Coles formed a few of the young college grads present who are either already actively engaged in the teaching profession or are pursuing graduate work. Messieurs Ralph Reynolds and J. David Reed, two well-known young men to the local realm, motored down from Marietta to enjoy the fun. The music was good, Neil Montgomery was never better, and mirth was rampant. Clarence W. Moore let circulation off his mind, and that helped. That would have made more sense to put at the beginning of the paragraph. I have a feeling Lucius Jones doesn't actually edit his column very much. <laughs> there are a lot of typos. The corps of honored athletes included Captains Jeffries, Pinckney, and Shag Jones of Morehouse. The corps of honored athletes included Captains Jeffries, Pinckney, and Shag Jones of Morehouse, Clark, and Morris Brown, respectively. As had been mentioned, coaches Nix and Lockhart were present. Rallying about their captains were Messrs. Willis Harris, Carl Ray, Walter Tate, Emmett Spurlock, Thomas Blake, Sylvester Stewart, Leonard Archer, Jesse Arnett, Donald Reeves, William Puckett, John Mebane, John Smith, Pinckney Robinson, 
John Hollingsworth, William Gaston, Johnny James, Leroy McNeil, Douglas Robinson, Theodore Mathis, Eric Roberts, Robert Stout, Curtis Cage, Frank Nelson, Jasper Jones, Brick Johnson, Leland Foster, and scores of others. Other masculines entailed Messrs. William Jackson, William Ward, Jerome Chapman, Oliver Wendell Holmes. That name sounds familiar. Mackenzie Jones, Herbert Rowland, Joel Washburn, James Perry, Ralph Perry, Oscar V. Stokes, Connor Parks, Ulysses Parks, Benny Parks, wow, a whole family of athletes, Keenan Thompson, what? <laughs> Keenan Thompson? This one's spelled differently, K-E-N-N-O-N. Maybe it's Kenan, Kenan Thompson. Matthew Green, Robert Knight, Carter Coleman, Skinny Greenwood, hey, there's my boy Skinny Greenwood. Clarence Sykes, J.C. Britton, Hewlett Hall, Shepard Turner. Hey, Shep Turner. That's Lucius's friend. Henry White, Luther Stokes, Lucius Darden, Willis Wynn, Willie Pullen, Frank Ray, Jack Thompson, Joseph Sansom, Cletus Burchett, David A. Earl, et al. The Pyramid Club of the Delta Sigma Theta sorority honored their big Greeks at an impressive little affair in Warren Hall, Clark University, last Wednesday afternoon, between the hours of 4 and 5.30. Miss Juanita Perkins, president of the Pyramid Club, acted as mistress of ceremonies, with Mrs. Edna E. Body, a charming young lady from the sunshine and flowers of Florida, Lucy Parks, Bessie Godwin, Rosalind Williams, another winsome Floridian, and Hilda Cannon, and Mrs. Eula Inright, the other pyramids present, cooperating on the program. Miss Geraldine Mitchell at the piano, hey, she's the one that hosted the gay little breakfast affair, furnished soft, melodious strains from many popular classical numbers while the repast was being served. Miss Frankie Neal, secretary of the Clark chapter of Delta Sigma Theta, choosing as her subject a theme based on the principles of Greek letter organizations, made a masterful talk as a leading feature of the program. Poems on character were delivered ably by Mrs. Williams and Parks. Miss Body scored with a beautiful vocal selection. The other guests unmentioned thus far were Mrs. Virginia Shirley Eberhardt and Clara Lavender, members of the Ivy Leaf Club, of the Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority, and Messrs. J. William Hawkins, Leonard P. Taylor, William Shag Jones, Cleaster Jennings, Theodore Johnson, Euline Jones, John T. Enright, J. Dewey Moore, and The Writer. Man, I love when Lucius refers to himself in the third person. At least he didn't call himself the maniac this time. More Enterprises! Messrs. O.E. Pollard and Lester Hancock, former bellmen of the Ansley Hotel, have opened up a very pretentious and serviceable funeral home. With ambulance service at 434 Fraser Street, Southeast. Of much interest to any layman with race pride and general elation over the success of any Negro enterprise is the fact that these two men have already started off with promise and reputation. Rivaling the rates and painstaking care of any similar agencies in the city, they challenge a checkup on their service. Pollard and Hancock was formerly the Bomar Funeral Homes. A beautiful Lincoln ambulance will supply the emergency and accessory service of the firm. Miss Lelia B. Hancock, wife of Mr. Hancock, and a well-known night school teacher at the E.P. Johnson School, is office attendant. What? More enterprises? 
It's Mr. M. L. Thomas this time. By way of introduction, although no such formality is needed, Mr. Thomas operates one of this city's most successful and most complete barbershops across from the Auburn Avenue Library, corner of Hilliard Street. The young proprietor, enjoying good returns from his service, says that he believes in live and let live. Well, he certainly is taking a radical step to prove it. Practically all his rates have been cut to a most surprising figure. His haircuts are but 25 cents. His haircut and shave together are but 35 cents. His plain massages are but 25 cents. His cream massages are only 35 cents. And his shampoos have been cut to 35 cents. Mr. Thomas is a specialist on ladies' barbs and children's cuts. A new feature! Beginning Wednesday, Mr. Lloyd Heath, advertising manager of the world, and your columnist together will collaborate and give to readers of the paper gift tips. This feature will give shoppers tips on scores of downtown bargains, tell shoppers where these bargains may be obtained, and will quote prices and other data on the same. Watch for gift tips as supplied by Lloyd Heath and yours till rejection. So long until Wednesday. <laughs> yours till rejection. God, I love you, Lucius. All right, everybody, thus ends this week's Society Slants, and thus ends this episode. Thank you to Soraya Peregrine for writing and performing the theme song, and thank you, Reverend Marigold, for collaborating with me on our song, Big White Bow. Don't forget to follow me on all my social media, subscribe to my Patreon, and please leave a positive review for the show on the podcatcher of your choice. That will really help me out. All right, farewell, everybody, and as always, keep eyes and ears peeled for further developments.